If you could choose anyone in the world to have over to your house for a meal, who would you pick? Now, some of you, maybe you'd pick a famous celebrity like Taylor Swift or an athlete like LeBron James. If you're younger, maybe you'd pick a social media influencer like Mr. Beast. I'm sure that would make for a, a very entertaining meal. Others of you, maybe you'd pick someone rich and powerful like President Joe Biden or Elon Musk. I think I'd like to see a dinner with the two of them together. That would also be very, very entertaining to see. You might go in the other direction and pick a faithful Christian author and speaker like Joni Erickson Tata. You know, whoever you pick, the reason I ask this question is because today's passage is unique in the whole Bible. It's the only time outside of Jesus' earthly ministry where God eats a meal with a human being. And whatever answer you thought to yourself, if it wasn't God, that trumps them all, right? That makes any other, any other answer look pretty lame. And in this fascinating passage, what we're going to see is Abraham hosts an unannounced dinner with God. He hosts God for dinner. And to understand this passage better and how it applies to our lives, we're going to break it down into two main points. We're going to look at hospitality and impossibility. We're going to look at the hospitality and the impossibility. Now, the last two weeks, we've studied God's appearance to Abraham in Genesis 17, where the covenant between them was clarified in a number of ways, and God finally, for the first time, specified that Abraham would have a son through his wife, Sarah. Now, our passage today occurred within a few weeks, maybe at most a couple of, of months from that interaction between God and Abraham. And in verse 1, we're told that God appeared to Abraham again, this time at his tent at the Oaks of Mamre. This appearance, though, it does not seem to be immediately obvious. Instead, the Lord appeared to Abraham in the form of a man accompanied by two other men that we later learn are angels. And as soon as Abraham saw these men, he sprung into action. In this passage, it gives us one of the best examples of hospitality in the entire Bible. And it's impressive on many levels. First, these men arrived during the heat of the day when work would generally stop and people would relax and, and often take a nap. And so this would have been an inconvenient time for visitors to arrive because it meant work for the host during nap time. Abraham didn't begrudge his guests that. Instead, he ran to meet them, bowed to show honor as was the custom, and he strongly urged them for the privilege to serve them. When they agreed to his appeal, the text emphasizes the passion of Abraham's hospitality by how hard he worked. Now, words like hurried, which is used twice, ran, which is used twice, and quickly, they give the passage this feeling of, of excited energy and action. At the same time, this wasn't a hasty or, or simple snack that he prepared. It wasn't like he just ran into you know, to the cupboard and pulled out some animal crackers, maybe some bubbly, some sparkling water, just kind of give him whatever he had. No, Abraham, he, he went all out. We see that in that he asked Sarah, to make the bread fresh from fine flour, so the very best that they had. And the amount, when you look into it, that he asked her to prepare, it was enough to feed a small army. It's way more than these men could possibly eat. He also had the fattened calf killed, which would typically only take place at feast or great celebrations. Along with the choice bread and meat, he provided milk and curds as rich sides, and I hope the curds were deep fat fried like the ones at Culver's, like the Culver's cheese curds. So, so Abraham here, what I want you to see is that he underpromised and overdelivered. He underpromised and overdelivered. He said, hey, let, me, let me give you just a, a bit of bread, a morsel of bread. 
And then what he actually gives them, it's more like a Thanksgiving Day feast. Now, on top of all of that, this is the kicker. Look at verse 8. Then Abraham took curds and milk as well as the calf that he had prepared and set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. Remember, Abraham, at this point, he has hundreds of men and women, a part of his household, who are at his command, and yet he personally brought the food to these visitors. When it says he served them as they ate under the tree, the Hebrew is literally, literally, he stood beside them as they ate. Abraham, before eating, stood by as the waiter for his guest, making sure they had everything they needed. And so the picture here in this section is of hospitality at its finest. And there seems to be at least two reasons that Moses goes into so much detail describing it to us. The first is that it's going to provide a dramatic contrast with the anti-hospitality that the city of Sodom demonstrated the very next day toward two of these same visitors who were sent ahead by the Lord to the city. And we're going to study that in two weeks. Second, it's a practical example for us of the hospitality that God desires all of his people to display. Hebrews 13.2 is almost certainly referring to Abraham's hospitality here in Genesis 18 when it says, don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. 1 Peter 4, it gives us another example of the emphasis that God places on hospitality. The end of all things is near. Note that. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. I love these verses for a few reasons. First, it it reminds us at the end of the age, the end of of life, this side of eternity, it's, it's coming to an end. The end is near, whether that's in one year or a thousand years that Christ returns. From an eternal perspective, it is near. And when you think of that thought, the end of all things is near. Where does your mind tend to go? What commands would you associate with that naturally? You know, for me, where my mind immediately goes is is to the urgency of sharing the gospel. And it's not that that isn't important, but that's not what Peter says here. He says the end of all things is near. And so he says, be alert, be alert. You need to pray, Christians. And then the very next thing he says is love one another. The end of all things is near. So love each other, believers. And then he expands on that by saying, be hospitable to one another. Be be hospitable. You know, it's interesting to me, that connection. When, if you see someone kind of holding the, the stereotypical you know, doom and gloom prophecy, the end is near, does your mind, do you immediately associate that with hospitality? <laughs> like when, when you are hospitable to others, do, do you connect that with with living in a way that makes sense in light of eternity? Because the scriptures, they do. Now, the command that we're given, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Two things I want you to notice here is that this is a command for all believers. Other scriptures clarify that some people have the gift of hospitality. Some people are are specially gifted by God, have a, a unique aptitude in this area. But this is something that all believers are commanded to practice. And the second thing that's implied here is that hospitality is costly. It says, do it it without grumbling. The reason it says that is because hospitality, it usually costs money, and it always costs time and energy. And so Peter says, you need to be hospitable, Christian, 
but you need to do that without grumbling. It needs to come from the heart. And the, the point here is that hospitality, it's important enough that all believers should prioritize it. Alexander Strzok, he helps explain why God puts such a high emphasis on hospitality in his book on biblical eldership. And he does so in a section that explains why hospitality is one of the biblical qualifications of being a pastor. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but the Bible says a man can't become a pastor unless there's a proven track record of hospitality in his life. Alexander Strzok says, giving oneself to the care of God's people means sharing one's life and home with others. An open home is a sign of an open heart and a loving, sacrificial, serving spirit. A lack of hospitality is a sure sign of selfish, lifeless, loveless Christianity. That's a strong statement, isn't it? That is a very strong statement. And of course, there are some disclaimers that could be added to it. But I think that in general, it's true. God intends hospitality to be one of the marks of believers. This makes perfect sense because God is triune and relational by nature. And so he desires his people to pursue genuine relationships and love like him. One of the things that can most quickly accelerate friendships is sharing a meal together, especially in someone's home. The Financial Times newspaper ran an article back in 2014 with the theme of how can you know if you're someone else's friend? And one of the main indicators that they put out, not the only one, but one of the main indicators of whether someone viewed someone else as their friend is if they'd had a meal in that person's house. Now, it's interesting to me. I ask my kids the question that I ask you, if you could invite anyone into the world, anyone in the world, you could have them over for dinner, who would you pick? Do you know what they said? It surprised me. They all started naming their friends. They didn't think about celebrities. They, they didn't think about famous people. They just picked their friends. And isn't that fitting? What we want to eat with, we want to spend time with our friends, the people that we really care about. Now, I want to say here that I am so proud of our church because so many of you are incredible examples in this area of hospitality, far better than, than I am. You know, many of you open up your homes multiple times a week to others by hosting Bible studies, by having play dates, by sharing meals with other believers and other, other individuals that you're reaching out to and trying to share the gospel with. Some of you are such great examples in this area. Now, others of you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, this is an area I really struggle at. This is an area that is really difficult for me, and that's, that's okay. It's not going to look the same in, in every person's life, but I think what I want you to realize is this is an area that all believers should be growing in. It's something we should be growing in, and I want to especially encourage those of you who are married with kids not to punt on this area. See, when you have kids, there's some extra dynamics. It's costly for everyone, but if you have kids, it's a lot harder to have your house clean when people come over because they can make the house dirty in about five minutes. It's harder to get a meal done at a certain time because you're also trying to take care of, of your kids. And if you have your kids over, you never know exactly how they're going to respond. I've had people over and my kids just melt down and have temper tantrums. And it can be a little bit awkward. It can be a little bit embarrassing. And even when they're behaving well, you don't know what your kids are going to say. <laughs> you know, recently, we had a, a friend over and we we're having a meal. And, and one of my children, he asked him, just in the middle of eating, he asked him, guess what? My friend says, What? My son looks at him right in the eyes and says, chicken butt. <laughs> it's just like, you just don't, you don't know. You don't know what your, your kids are going to say. And my point is that if you're going to pursue hospitality, you have to be ready that at times it'll be a little awkward. That's just, part, that's just part of it. 
It's often wonderful, but there, there's times where you, you, don't, you don't know how it's going to go. You can't predict exactly how it, it's going to go. But I think for many families, opening up the home, it can be one of the best opportunities to do ministry together. When life is busy, people are going in different directions, having a meal together. It's not the only, but I think it's one of the best opportunities to do a meal together and to model how to, how to be intentional in loving others as believers. You know, when we have people over, we, we try to pray with our kids. We try and pray and, and help them understand why, why are we doing this? Something else that sometimes we'll do is Agatha and I will talk and try and have a little bit of a plan. Like if, we, if we're hoping to talk to a couple and they have their kids coming with them, uh, maybe we'll uh, put on a movie so the kids have something and there's a better chance that we'll actually be able to talk, especially if they have something they want to talk to us about. At other times, maybe I'll say, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the kids and then hopefully you can have a, a chance to have a conversation with this gal. Another thing that we love to do is if we have Christians over, we love to ask them to share their testimony. Because our hope is that by the time our kids get out of the house, they've heard hundreds of stories of different Christians and how God has drawn them to himself, how God has saved them. A question for you to consider in light of that is when was the last time that you were intentionally hospitable? When was the last time you were intentionally hospitable? See, what I would encourage you to do, I would encourage you to try and build hospitality into your schedule. In my experience, I think the people who, who build hospitality into their schedule, they're the ones who tend to be the most spontaneously hospitable as well, like Abraham in this passage. Now, to build it in, again, it's going to look different based on your gifting, based on many different factors. For some of you, maybe it's just once a month or every six weeks you try and invite someone into your home. Or maybe you just take them out to coffee, buy someone coffee. For, for others of you, I know you try and weekly have a night that you designate or a meal on the weekend where you just designate. We're, we're going to try and invite someone, someone over uh, to build into spiritually, someone from church, or maybe a neighbor or a friend that we're hoping to share the gospel with. See, whatever it looks like, having people into your house, looking for other ways to, to serve and be generous to people, our church, we want to be marked by family love, family-like love, and, and a commitment to joyful hospitality. It's one of the key components to creating that culture. One last interesting note on hospitality here is that Abraham is referred to three times in Scripture as a friend of God. And God directly calls Abraham his friend in Isaiah 41, 8. While there were many sacrifices that were brought to God in the Old Testament, this again is the only passage where God before the incarnation appears in the form of a man and has a meal with another human being. And that just further underlines this connection between godly hospitality and genuine friendships. Godly hospitality, it helps engender genuine friendships. God was so close with Abraham that he came to have dinner with him. And he also shared his plans with him. We'll see that next week. But as the rest of our passage shows, another reason that God dropped by unannounced for dinner was not just for Abraham's sake, but for Sarah's. And that brings us to our second main point, the impossibility. Pick up the account with me in verse 9. Where is Sarah, your wife? They ask him. They're in the tent, he answered. Their question about her location and Abraham's response made it clear that the men knew Sarah was listening to the conversation and would hear the shocking statement they made next. Verse 10, the Lord says, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now, this is not news to us. It's not news to Abraham because of Genesis 17. 
But it's unclear whether this is news to Sarah or not. Now, I say that because of her response that we read about in verses 11 through 12. It says, Abraham and Sarah were getting old, or were old, I'm sorry, and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? Verse 11, it prepares us to understand Sarah's reaction to the Lord's promise. The couple was old and they're getting older. At this point, Abraham was 99 and Sarah was 90 years old and she'd been barren her entire life. And just in case we have any doubts, Moses adds that she had passed the age of childbearing. So she's postmenopausal here, which means that it is a biological impossibility for her to get pregnant on a natural level. It's not, that, it's not just that this was a long shot, it's that there is no shot. It's not that there are million to one odds here, the odds are zero. It's a 0% chance of her getting pregnant naturally. And this is why she laughed to herself. And we know it wasn't a laugh of believing joy. It was actually a, a laugh of unbelief. It was probably one of bitterness as well, a laugh like, yeah, right. <laughs> now, now I've heard everything. Me getting pregnant, that's a good one. That's a, that's a, good, that's a good joke. And we, we know that this was a laugh of unbelief because the Lord gently calls her out for her laugh and she lied about it out of fear in verse 15. So this was not a, a believing laugh. And we see the Lord's gentle call out of her in verses 13 through 14. Why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? I will come back at the appointed time, and in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah's laugh, it makes perfect sense from a purely human level, but it failed to factor in the promise of God. And that's what God himself points out with his penetrating question, the classic question, is anything impossible for the Lord? Now, Kevin DeYoung, he gave a message on this passage, and many of his thoughts were helpful for me, and so I want to give credit where credit's due. His thoughts are going to shade some of what I share with you in the rest of this passage and influence it. The Lord knew Sarah was 90 when he gave this promise to her. He knew she was barren. He knew she was no longer producing eggs. And so he knew this was a biological impossibility. And he says to her, so what? <laughs> so, so what? Is anything impossible for me? Translators will tell you that this is literally, is anything too hard or is anything too wonderful or too amazing for me? The Lord's point here is not just that he can do it. His point is that this isn't even hard. This isn't even difficult for him. You see, all of us know people who make things that we could never do look easy. You know, whether it's an, a major league baseball player hitting a home run, whether it's someone earning a, a PhD, whether it's someone bench pressing over 500 pounds, all of us, we know people that are the best in their fields or are so bright, so talented. That they make what they do look easy. But people who are the best at what they do They'll tell you, it's not easy. It takes hard work. Even if you're talented, to be the best at what you do, it takes a lot of hard work. And even then, even for the best of the best, success isn't guaranteed. The best athletes, they still, they still miss shots. You know, the best scholars, they still make errors. The strongest men can still get errored or still get injured. See, success, humanly, is never guaranteed. But it's not that way with God. See, for God... He always succeeds in accomplishing his plans. He always fulfills his purposes. 
Because of that, we, we shouldn't think about God like a really strong action hero or maybe like a superhero even. I have a, a picture here of some of the Marvel Avengers fighting Thanos, okay? And we shouldn't think about God as just way bigger than us, just way stronger than us. Like he's able against all odds to figure out some way to save the day and to defeat the enemy. That's, not, that's never the way it plays out. You see, all the odds in the universe can be stacked against you, and that means nothing if the God who created the universe is for you. It doesn't matter what the odds are against you if the God who just spoke and the whole universe came into being, if the God who sustains it all, like Scripture says, who continues to hold the galaxies together and the oceans together and allow every one of our hearts to keep beating, if that God is real, then broken ovaries, old age, that's not hard for God to fix. Abraham and and Sarah, they'd been waiting at least 25 years on the promise, much longer for them, much longer than that, hoping for a child. And it must seem to them like, is this ever going to happen? Are we ever going to get a child? And God comes and says, at the appointed time. So he was always on God's calendar. He always knew when he was going to give them a child. And so, church, is anything too difficult for the Lord? No. That's the point of this passage. That's the big idea here. But, but I want to unpack that thought for the next few minutes. First, the scripture actually clarifies that there is one thing that's impossible for God to do. Did you know that? What's impossible for God? It's impossible for God to lie. And so by implication, it's impossible for God to sin. Nothing's too hard for God, but he never does anything that is inconsistent with his perfect character. And so that's an important disclaimer. Second, there's a difference between what God can do and what he's promised to do. And this is an important distinction. For example, is it too hard for God to just put a million dollars into your bank account? Is it too hard for for God to answer the prayers of the Cyclone Nation and have the Iowa State football team win a national championship in football? It's not too hard. There's no promise for that. God makes no promises about Iowa State football. And on a more serious note, the same is true for prayers that we pray for loved ones. Prayers that we pray for those who are are sick, those who are dying. The same is true for, for our prayers that our church would grow. The same is true for our prayers for God to bless our nation. Are any of those things difficult for God, too hard for God? No. Does he give us specific promises about them? No. And so there are two ditches that we have to avoid as a church. The first is the word of faith ditch. Sometimes this is is kind of jokingly referred to as the name it and claim it ditch. And so there's pastors and speakers like Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, and Joyce Myers that are very popular who have, have taught this. And the idea is that faith is a force that we muster up ourselves independent of God. And if we have enough of it, God will have to do what we ask him to do. And so in, in effect, God, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't stay our master. He becomes a genie. He, he serves us. He's at our beck and call. Now, to be fair, those teachers, they wouldn't put it in those terms, but I think that is the essence of what they end up teaching. And this idea, it's easy to see why it's so popular because it highlights the awesome power of God and then it implies that we can tap into it or control it somehow according to our own selfish desires or at best, we can control it according to our own short-sighted wisdom. Think about how different that type of praying is 
from what was modeled for us by Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's the perfect example of a life of faith. And he poured out his heart to God the Father there. If there's any other way, take this cup away. Take this cup from me. But then what did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. You see, if you're going to be in a relationship with God, you have to let God be God. And that means that you have to submit your whole life to his good and perfect will, even if he leads you into the exact opposite of what you want. What this means for us in our prayers is that when we're praying for something that God doesn't explicitly make promises about, then we should submit our prayers to him like a humble child, not like a proud and demanding boss. You see, kids, they will let you know what they want. They'll tell you what they want. They'll probably tell you multiple times. But a child, they they should ask, recognizing we get to decide. The parent gets to choose. And in the same way, we don't pray telling God what to do, giving him directions. We come and we pour, pour out our hearts to him, but we recognize he's God not us. So that's ditch number one. It's to expect that God is going to use his awesome power however we want him to. Now, knowing most of you, I would say that is not the ditch that I think our church probably leans towards. Maybe some of you it is, but I don't think that's the ditch that most of us would be inclined towards. Instead, I think most of us are more likely to be in the ditch where we don't pray big enough prayers to God that we don't actually expect God to do surprising things or new things that we haven't experienced before. And this is an error as well because God loves to reveal himself in new ways. God loves to show his impossible defying power to his people as we walk with him. And as I look back on my life, there are times where God has answered prayers that have just blown my mind. And one I've, I've shared before, but it, it just is typically the first that comes to my mind is that in college, shortly after I graduated, I was doing college ministry and I didn't have very much money. So I was living paycheck to paycheck. And I was working, doing landscaping at that time. And one day I, I got there early and so I didn't have my normal routine getting out of the vehicle. And so I ended up locking my keys in the car. And I didn't realize that until later that day, I drove the whole day with my boss. And so he dropped me off. He'd already left when I realized it. And I was pretty frustrated. It's like, I, I don't have very much money uh, this is going to be expensive. It's after hours. And so I remember I, I went and I was praying, and I just thought to myself, God, you can unlock my door. Like, this isn't hard. I have, I have almost no money. God, will you unlock my door? And I knew it was locked, but I went back, and I tried the, the driver's side door, locked, tried the two back doors, worked my way around the vehicle. I came to the passenger side door, and I'm like, Lord, this is going to be unlocked. This is going to be awesome. And I reached, and I pulled the handle, and guess what? It was still locked. <laughs> and I remember thinking this exact, this exact train of thought, well, God, you never promised to unlock my doors when I'm a bonehead and I lock my keys in my car. And so I called a locksmith. I didn't want to. I called a locksmith. The locksmith gets there. A couple minutes, you know, he gets the, the door unlocked, and I ask him how much it's going to cost, and he says, nothing. Nothing. And he says, but I want you to understand, no locksmith would ever do this. They might, they might not charge you for the work, but they charge you for the gas, especially after hours. He says, I'm doing this because I want you to know the love of Father God. And my jaw, like, it must have hit the ground. There's so many questions I wish I would have asked him. I think I was in shock in that moment. Like, looking back, maybe he was an angel, <laughs> like Moses. Like, maybe he was just an angel from the Lord. But in that moment, I was just blown away. God is aware of me. God listens to me. God's so much more powerful than I usually realize. 
Now, I don't want you to, to think that that's my everyday experience. It's not. But, but there are times I look back and I see how God has answered dramatic prayers. Some of you are the most encouraging answers to prayer in my life. When I think about how I prayed for you and to see how God has so dramatically changed you. When I think about my life, how much God has changed me over the last 20 years. When I think about our church, how much God has, has grown our church, how many people have gotten saved, how many people's lives have been changed, how many leaders God has raised up. Now, the church plants we've been able to be a part of, that we were able to send people to Rhode Island. And we have missionaries overseas. Like 20 years ago, like that, that would have seemed impossible if you told me where our church was at now. Despite the incredible ways I've seen God work in the past, can I make a confession to you? I still sometimes, like Sarah, doubt that God is going to do powerful things in the future. See, Sarah and Moses, they had seen God do incredible things. They'd seen him do amazing things, and yet she still didn't believe that God was going to fulfill this promise. She didn't, she didn't trust that he was going to do this, and we can be the same way. And so that's one of the reasons why I think it's good for our souls to regularly, as Christians, pray prayers that are God-sized, things that could not happen unless God does it. And some of the reasons that that is helpful is it reminds us of the big ways he's answered prayers in the past. It guards us from our tendency of shrinking God down and not expecting much from him. And it actually gives us an opportunity to see God in unique ways respond to us. To pray for special things, I don't think anyone else is praying for that, but God listened to me. I, I was praying for that. Now, as I've been thinking about this, uh, this passage, a few of the prayers that, that are, are stretching for me, largely in, in connection with our church, I thought I'd share some of those with you. One of the things I, I like to pray is that every child growing up in our church would be saved, that not a single one would walk away from the Lord. And when you look at the averages across America, there is no reason to expect that that will happen apart from God doing something really miraculous. Except for God being so gracious to us and working through us, we shouldn't expect that. And yet, that prayer is so close to God's heart. And so I'd invite all of you to pray, pray that with me. There's something else our local team decided to do this year to help stretch us, to help keep us uh, remembering you know, what, what is uh, the thing we're actually hoping to do in terms of glorifying God and reaching people. We decided that we're going to pray for 23 people to be saved and 23 people to be baptized this year. Now, could God do that? Of course. But that would be significantly more than we've seen him do in any given year so far. And so I'd invite you to, to pray for that as well. Another prayer that the Shriner mentioned last week is praying that we'd be in a position as a church to be able to, to help plant another church in 2025. I think it was back in 2018 where we started to encourage the church to pray for that. And, and God has grown us a lot since then. But we'd still have to go a long way to be in a good position to do that. We'd need more laborers, you know, more people with different giftings, more people who are available to, to volunteer, more people who are, are hospitable and opening up their homes for the gospel. We need more leaders to be raised up, more, more pastors, additional pastors. That stretches me. That, that prayer, could, could that happen? It stretches me, but it's an exciting thing for me to pray. Another thing that I would encourage you to, to be praying for is revival in our nation. See, I bet all of us are discouraged by many of the things that we see going on in our country all around us. But a question for you to think about is, are any of those things too hard for God? See, our country, it is broken. There's no, there's no presidential candidate who's going to fix everything in our country. 
But I'd, I would encourage you to be praying for President Joe Biden. We're commanded to in scriptures, to be praying for our political leaders and to be praying for the churches in America, that God would work through us in a unique way to see millions of people saved, millions of people's hearts changed, and that would change the trajectory of our nation. Do you believe that God could do that? There's been revivals in America in the past. Do you believe that God could do that again? Another thing so close to God's heart is to pray that the Great Commission would be fulfilled in our lifetime, that in our lifetime Christ would return because the gospel has reached every tongue and tribe and language, and Christ is now returned. God's going to do that. What a, what a wonderful thing to pray. What a wonderful thing to keep, keep in front of us. Now, you don't have to pray those prayers. Those are some of the things that I've prayed, but there's a different prayer that in some ways can be at times harder for me to believe that God will answer. And this shifts. This is in the other category. This is something that God actually promises he will do. And that is that he has the power to change me. You see, God promises if you're a Christian, he is going to keep working to conform you and make you like Jesus Christ. And so one of the, one of the things for us to pray for is to pray for God to change us. The areas, whether it's, whether it's pride or greed, maybe it's just boldness, to give us more boldness, to be willing to share the gospel. Maybe it's hospitality to help us grow in that area. But whatever it is, to pray in those areas of sin that you seem to always get tripped up in, to pray, God, change me. See, that's one of the, that's one of the places we can be most bold with God. We can have the greatest confidence. God, I can't change in this area, but you promised that you can change me. Change me. Make me more like Jesus Christ. See, all those things that I mentioned, those are easy for God to do. He, he can do all of, of those things, but he doesn't promise them. But the prayer for God to change us as a believer, that's one we can bank on. That's a prayer that we know God will answer as we submit to him. And this, this uh, leads us into the second category. I already mentioned it, but I want us to, to think for a few minutes more about the things God has actually promised to do. So not the things that we can ask and see is that God's will or not, but what are, what are some of the things that God has actually promised? And the first one, it's probably not where your, your mind initially goes. The first thing is that God promises in his word to never leave the guilty unpunished. See, that would violate God's holy nature. It is impossible for God to, to not punish sinners. And God, he has all the power in the universe to actually carry out that promise. And the place that it's ultimately going to be accomplished is in hell. And so if God gave each of us what we deserve, Eternity in hell, that would be our fate. Now, the reason that there's hope for sinners like us is actually because of an even greater miracle than the birth of Isaac. And it's the, the birth that, that Isaac's, I'm sorry, it's the, the miracle that the birth of Isaac to Sarah, it's what it foreshadowed. It's the thing that led to this greater miracle. You see, when Isaac was born, God gave a 90-year-old barren postmenopausal woman the capacity to conceive through her husband. But when Jesus Christ was born, God himself, he stepped into his own creation as a man and he did it through the, through the womb of a virgin. That has never happened before and it is never gonna happen again. Jesus Christ took on flesh to live a perfect life, then die on the cross for our sins, even our sin in moments of belief or moments of unbelief as his followers. Moments like Sarah had in this passage. Even the times of unbelief Jesus died for all of our sins. And then in the greatest miracle of all, he conquered death and he rose from the dead. 
I love the way that Peter Larson puts it. He says, the life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance and left through a door marked no exit. Isn't that awesome? Like what what an exclamation point to the question, is anything too impossible for God? Well, look at the life of Jesus Christ. The life of Jesus Christ is a resounding no. Nothing's too impossible for God. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in him will never pay for their sin because it's already been paid for by God himself. Instead, if you're a Christian, all of God's promises for his people are now yours in Christ. Promises like Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why at the end of chapter 8, it can say if you're a Christian, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Romans 8 famously also says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Philippians 1.6, it points to, to character and the promises about our character I mentioned earlier. It says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, God's gonna keep working on you, keep working to make you more like Christ. But the incredible promise is that when you see the Lord someday face to face, he'll make you like him. You'll finally be like him. You'll never have a moment of pride again. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) You'll never have a moment of lust or greed or unbelief ever again. Now, the Bible, it is full. There are hundreds and hundreds of promises for God's people, but I want to share one more. In light of just the lavish hospitality that Abraham showed in Genesis 18, I want to share one other incredible promise of God, and it's almost too wonderful to fathom. Jesus shared a parable to teach his followers to be alert for his return, and then he indicated what we should expect from him when he returns. He said, blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, then come and serve them. Brothers and sisters, this is the greatest motivation for us to be hospitable as Christians. It's because of the incomparable hospitality that God has shown to us. If you're born again, if you're a Christian and know Christ, then God hasn't just treated you as an honored guest. He's adopted you as one of his precious sons and daughters. Jesus said that he went went to prepare a place for us in his eternal kingdom, that there's a place for you in heaven. And as as inexpressible as all that is, he also promises in this verse to continue to serve us in heaven. We're gonna feast with Christ in heaven and like Abraham, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, he's gonna continue to serve as the greatest servant of all. Now, don't misunderstand me. In heaven, everyone's going to worship Christ. There's going to be no confusion about who rules in heaven. And yet at the same time, God promises that in heaven, he's going to serve his faithful servants. Isn't that incredible? But that's so consistent with the heart of God. Who wouldn't want to serve a God like this? Who wouldn't want to entrust the rest of their lives to a God like this? It almost seems too good to be true. A God as powerful as God is, and yet as humble and gracious as God is. Now, this is exactly the point of our passage. Many scholars think that verse 14 is best best translated as, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? 
You see, we, we often say, this sounds too good to be true, but the more and more we understand the gospel, the more we'll say, this is so good, it must be true. <laughs> this, is, this, is so, this is so good, it must be true of our God. You see, we have all known incredible hosts, people who are so generous and thoughtful to the guests in their houses. And yet for many of us, that's not the way that we think about God. And yet in reality, he is so much more generous, so much more hospitable than your grandma <laughs> or your, your uncle who's a great chef. His, his hospitality, it, it, it blows all others out of the water. It goes infinitely beyond what, what we've experienced from anyone else. Now, just to close, I, I want you to picture the very best day of your life that you can, that you can possibly imagine. So let's say that, that you're where you most love to be. Maybe it's the mountains. Maybe it's a lake, lake house. Maybe your grandma's, grandma's farmhouse. The place you like most in the world. And you have your favorite food. You got a classic frozen custard there for sure. You have all your favorite food, your favorite people, your friends and family that you feel closest to, and you're doing your favorite things. Maybe it's playing board games or watching a movie, just talk, talking to your friends. Do you have that picture in your mind? Just the, the, the ideal day. What you need to understand is that those types of days, if you could have that and experience that, that is just a tiny little foretaste of what a normal day in heaven will be like. Just a normal day with the Lord and in his presence will be. You see, to close, circling back to our passage, Abraham's hospitality, if you are a believer, it's not just a wonderful example for us, but it's also a little glimpse into the hospitality of our glorious God to you and to me. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, thank you. <laughs> thank you for your word and thank you for who you are. God, it, it does seem too good to be true. We would never believe this about you if you didn't show us in your word. If you didn't tell us over and over again that this, this is your heart, this is who you are. Lord, I, I pray for all of us that we'd have a, a little clearer picture of who you are, that we'd be more impressed by you. Not just your power, but we'd be impressed by your heart as well. God, I do pray that you would help us to expect bigger things from you, to expect you to work in our lives and to work through our lives. And I pray as a church that, that we'd become more and more like you that we become more hospitable in the way we love one another and the way that we reach out to our community. God, you can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. And so thank you for the adventure it is, the privilege it is to be able to follow you. And God, we look forward to, uh, in, in your will, Lord willing, just looking back and just seeing you do amazing things over the next five, 10, 20 years in our church. So we pray all these things in your great name. Amen. Well, this time we're going to continue.